So where does evil come from? We've thought about it. We have prayed about it. Where does it come from? That's perhaps one of the deepest and most perplexing and and also most personal of questions that is possible to ask. We've been looking, haven't we, at these uh, these three chapters in uh, in Genesis to remember Charles Darwin. And um, although actually Darwin himself was uh, extremely cautious about uh, any thought that the ideas of evolution explained everything, his disciples who followed him uh, often have seen the idea of evolution, a world governed by pure blind chance, as being the key to understanding absolutely everything, not just biological systems, but life itself. And I hope, as over the last few weeks, you have seen that again and again, certainly from my perspective, I have wanted to, to persuade you that is just not true. Evolution may be a useful scientific theory, but it doesn't explain the deepest things about life. In Genesis 1 and 2, I've tried to show you that actually the Bible's story of origins does. First of all, we saw, for instance, in Genesis 1, that Genesis 1 insists the material world is not all there is. The mind of God preceded the physical universe. The mind of God created the physical universe. The mind of God now, says the Bible, sustains the physical universe. Material things are not the ultimate reality of the universe. Behind atoms and forces there is mind. There is, as uh, many people would put it, a spiritual realm. So that that makes sense of what human beings instinctively sense about themselves and about this world. We are more than just the atoms we are made of. We saw as well that um, uh, Genesis chapters, uh, uh, chapter 1 and 2 describe the world that God created out of his imagination as very good. There was nothing bad about it at all. And then the last two weeks, we've begun to sketch a a biblical picture of what it means to be humans. And we said we are not just animals fighting tooth and nail for supremacy. We are more than that. We are, as the Bible says, made in the image of God. We were made not to, not to compete, but to cooperate. Not to kill, but to love. 
not just to pass on our genes with the maximum efficiency, but actually to imitate God. We are not made to be Genghis Khan. We were made to be like Jesus. But now to this deepest and most emotionally raw and charged of questions that we have dealt with so far. Where does evil come from? Often, actually, you find even hardened atheists when actually they meet trouble and tragedy, you find them asking the question, why? And in a, in a world of pure materialism where there is no God, that question is, to be honest, utterly ridiculous. I mean, Richard Dawkins, for instance, has made this point many times in his uh, writing and speaking, but nowhere more clearly than in a lecture he gave about uh, 15 years ago where he ended by saying, in a universe of physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties that we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And the average human heart recoils with horror at that. the average human heart actually says, surely there's something more to this universe. Particularly when pain and suffering comes. No evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Really? I want to show you that actually the biblical picture of evil and its origin makes sense of this world at precisely the point when a world without God doesn't make sense of it. And we're going to see that from Genesis chapter 3. I'd love to pick out so many things from Genesis 3, but I want to just try to point you to four things in this chapter that begin to sketch for us a biblical understanding of evil. The first of these is this. God did not create evil. 
We've already seen in previous weeks. God created his universe good. Indeed, uh, the end of um, uh, the um, creation story in Genesis 1, it is pronounced very good. Was there, though, something that predisposed creation to the tragic events of Genesis chapter 3? Was there sort of an inexorable force that that, that drew the man and the woman and the snake to uh, um, the uh, sin and rebellion that we just were reading about in Genesis 3. Genesis, Genesis chapters 1 and particularly Genesis 2 shout the answer, no! There was nothing in the creation that actually drew them in that direction at all. The world that God created lacked no good thing. The world that God created was full of glorious, wonderful, good things for the first man and woman to do. We saw, didn't we, how in Genesis chapter 2, verse 12, God creates gold and onyx and aromatic resin up in the hills for them to go and enjoy. He creates innumerable trees with a vast variety of flavours for them to enjoy. There is nothing stingy about God in Genesis 2. There is nothing, there is nothing that, that somehow should arouse resentment, only delight and pleasure. Of course, people immediately... Uh, um, uh, suggest God was asking for trouble by placing this one forbidden tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right in the centre of the garden and then saying to Adam, we see in chapter 2, verse 16, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat of it you will surely die. You know, if an adult um, left a bottle of poison on the table saying to a child now <coughs> now don't drink that because you'll be in big trouble if you did and then walked out and left the child on, on, on its own the adult would rightly bear a significant chunk of blame if that child poisoned itself isn't that the same with God? what's he doing leaving that tree there? You see, we misunderstand that, that how, this, how the story functions at that, uh, at that point. Almost certainly this tree of the knowledge of good and evil has, has a symbolic significance. It's not some arbitrary bottle of, uh, or, or, or poisoned um, plant that God has placed in, in there as a sort of uh, challenge to Ad, uh, Adam and Eve. It, it, it stands for the fact that the good creation that God has created must be used in an appropriate way. It would be ridiculous for God to create a world where it was absolutely, completely, physically impossible to misuse his creation. No, God has given them enormous freedoms, massive variety, great liberty, and, he, and, and then he said, but use it right 
This is not, this is not a, this is not a, um, an arbitrary test. This is, this is not a, um, a mean limitation set upon them. It is simply acknowledgement that as human beings made in his image, we have the responsibility, we have the freedom to use his creation appropriately. Of course, some people say, well, the very fact that he gave human beings free will, that was God's great mistake. Well, the, uh, uh, the Bible never um, uh, deals with that problem except to say that it is part of the dignity and the glory and the majesty of human beings that he made us people who can freely respond to him, who can make responsible decisions. What Genesis 2 makes very plain is there was nothing at all in the creation that should have led them to rebel. Nothing at all. God created it very good. God's purpose for his creation was entirely good. The creation stemmed, flowed from the goodness of God. That is why human beings, when they experience evil, they experience it as evil. We have a deep sense that something monstrous has intruded into this good world, something that shouldn't be there, something that is not the way it was supposed to be. Exactly, says the Bible, it was not. It is not God's intention. You know, the prophet Muhammad told his followers simply to um, um, humble themselves under the mysterious will of God. The Buddha told his followers to uh, simply recognise that... uh, Uh, Good and evil are illusions and they need to rise above these, uh, um, these turbulent things to a place of peace. Richard Dawkins says, accept this universe is just a place of blind, pitiless indifference and the Bible says, no, no, no. Evil in this world is very real, it is hostile to us, it is, should not be here, it is contrary to the will of a good God. God didn't create it, it is not just the way things are. Evil is evil. God didn't create evil. Notice this Genesis 3. His creatures did. Into the garden saunters this uh, this snake. And uh, the story is really quite simple. The snake persuades the woman to eat that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She persuades... Um, she in turn persuades the man to do the same and suddenly 
all hell breaks loose. They are at odds with each other, they are in fear of God, a curse comes over the whole of creation, they are banished from the garden. The rest of it, uh, the Bible makes it plain that this, this snake is the devil. Some theologians have thought the devil disguised himself as a snake. Some have suggested that, that this is another um, bit of s- a symbolic representation of the devil in this story. But behind those words are the devil. So who is responsible in that story for the first sin. The story is actually very carefully told to implicate equally all three of the main characters, the devil, the woman and the man. So, so if, if the woman or the man, for instance, had initiated, had come up with the idea of eating the fruit from the tree, then the devil would have been an innocent bystander, wouldn't he? If the devil had persuaded the man to eat the fruit, then the woman would have been an innocent uh, bystander. If their eyes had been opened, immediately the woman ate the fruit, then the man would have been an innocent bystander. But as it is, the story is carefully told to implicate all three. The devil speaks to the woman, the woman eats the fruit, the man eats the fruit, and their eyes are opened. The sin comes to completion when the man has eaten. None of them is innocent. All of them have played their part in that first sin. Some people today um, doubt a supernatural dimension to evil. The Bible says very clearly there is a supernatural dimension to it from the start. I remember very vividly actually uh, at the beginning of the Balkans War, which was a long time ago now, a reporter who had known that region for many years was reporting on, uh, on what was happening. And he said that the, the terrible transformation of the people that he saw in that region led him for the first time, he said, as a Radio 4 reporter of all things, to believe in a supernatural force of evil. Couldn't believe it. Nothing else, he said, could explain the horrors of what was happening in the Balkans. Amen, says the Bible. There are spiritual forces of evil uh, that we barely know the power of in this world. The devil was involved in rebellion against God from the beginning and he continues to be. But other people, Christians especially, are so obsessed with the supernatural dimension to evil, they in some ways sort of encourage human beings to abdicate responsibility. I have a spirit of sloth, a spirit of anger or whatever. The Bible won't let us get away with it. Yeah, there's a spiritual dimension. But human beings make human choices too 
and we are responsible for that. How did this first sin come into being then? We've seen each of the characters shares their own responsibility for it. What was it that led them down that road? We are told nothing about what led the devil down that road but we see a little bit more of what was going on in the woman's heart. Firstly, we find her listening to a snake. May well be the reason that uh, um, the devil here is portrayed as a snake to make it extremely clear that she is taking advice from a source that she should not do. Just a little earlier, they have named the animals, they rule over the animals and they're called to listen to God. But now she's ignoring God and listening to an animal. Who is the devil? What's she doing? Into that uh, um, small chink the devil insinuates himself slyly portraying God as a restrictive killjoy. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He's trying to undermine her trust in God by actually exaggerating the limitations that God has set. Now he's only, only one tree. Not, not any tree. And the woman, although she responds partially to that, she shows a certain amount of ignorance in what the instructions are. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Amen, yes, he said that. And you must not touch it or you will die. He never said that. Either Adam has miscommunicated it because Adam was the one who was spoken to or, or the woman has, uh, has not taken it on board or uh, in typical human legalistic style they've decided, well, we won't go just for the limitation. We'll put a great big, great big margin around that. Whatever's gone wrong, they've started, she started to misunderstand God. God gave her enormous liberty. She can look at the fruit, take it off, put it on her mantelpiece if she wants to. How are you not eating it? And it seems almost as if that imagined false restriction that she imagines God has placed upon her, again opens her heart up to rebelling against God. And the serpent strikes. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And this is partially true. Death is not immediate as we will see. But it becomes inevitable. 
They will be like God, actually, but in a dreadful way. God has contingent knowledge. God always knew and understood what the world might be like if sin entered it. But human beings didn't. They had entirely, they were entirely innocent of any appreciation of evil until they chose it. When in a terrible, distorted way they became like God, knowing good and evil. Oh yes, Satan, you've not told a total lie, but you have massively distorted the truth. But she's a sucker for it. She was ignorant. She didn't know the liberty that God had really given her. She was faithless. She couldn't trust that God's gift to her was good and that going beyond that would be bad for her. She was proud. It was an impossible temptation to resist the thought of being like God. And so, the first sin, the first bit of evil entered this world. Those are the roots of evil. Analyse actually any human failure today and you will find those ingredients. Ignorance, faithlessness, pride. Look at the failures of your heart and you will know it's those things that drive you again and again. And those things came into the world through the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. The famous story about a debate which ran in the Times newspaper many years ago. It's been told in many a sermon, but let me retell it. They were debating what was wrong with the world and uh, G.K. Chesterton wrote in and he said, Sir, what is wrong with the world? I am yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. That's what human beings need to know. God didn't create evil. His creatures did. Principle amongst them. Men and women. But the third thing we need to understand to get ourselves oriented about evil is that evil spreads. Immediately the man and the woman are at odds. The eyes of both of them were opened. This is verse 7. They realised that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made 
coverings to themselves for themselves. Now, when people have read that historically, many have thought that that must mean that the first sin was a sexual sin. Indeed, um, perhaps it was this discovery of sex itself. Hence the subsequent embarrassment at their nakedness. But that cannot be. Sex in the Bible is a good thing. God, God didn't tell them to go forth and multiply and fill the earth and, said, and then say, oh, by the way, do it asexually, did he? No, their embarrassment about their nakedness is not about their sexuality. It is about their differentness. Their physical differences now become a threat. So they conceal themselves. They conceal their differences. You see it you know, today, you see it in, amongst teenagers, that, that insecure phase of life. What do, what do teenagers do? They make sure they dress like the rest of their gang. Because other people are a threat. We can manage that threat if we try and hide the differentness of human beings. The man and the woman are at odds. They consider one another a threat. They are at odds with God as well. Verse 8. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. When God does find them out, they desperately try to blame everyone else, including God, for their failure. Verse 12, the man said to God, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Simultaneously he's blaming the woman and God for putting her there with him. And the, the woman, when she's questioned, says to, the, to, the, to, to God, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the man blamed the woman, the woman blamed the serpent and the serpent hadn't got a leg to stand on, as they say. An awful lot of uh, what goes wrong in the world can be traced in terms of those direct ruptures in relationship, direct immediate ruptures in relationship between the man and woman, a direct immediate rupture in the relationship with God. But the Bible explains the consequences of that sin spreading far further than that. When um, uh, God finally speaks to, uh, to Adam about his sin, we see God saying in verse 17, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. This, this um, 
consequence of the first sin has now spread from their, them, from their immediate relationships, actually to the whole of creation itself. Some evils are very obviously human and directly caused by humans. Some are not. What do you make of the Boxing Day tsunami of a couple of years ago, for instance? A friend of mine pointed out that actually an enormous proportion of the devastation that that tsunami caused was pretty much directly due to human sin. Poor people in the countries that were devastated had been forced to go and live in little shacks more or less down on the beach. There had been no investment in an early warning system in the, in the Pacific. Now, an awful lot of the suffering of the tsunami was a direct human failure. But beyond that, there are dimensions of these natural disasters which we cannot pin down directly as the response, uh, as the consequence of human sin. But the Bible says that actually our connectedness with this creation as a whole is deeper and more profound than we think. And somehow, when human beings who were placed on the earth to care for the whole earth sinned, the, the brokenness of the earth became universal. God didn't create evil. Human beings and Satan created evil. Evil spreads right into the very heart of the fabric of the universe. And then there's a fourth thing that Genesis 3 starts to outline. God fights evil with grace. Begins in chapter 3 verse 9. God calls to the man. Verse 8 in fact. Let's do from there. He was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and Adam and Eve hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He doesn't terminate the relationship. He doesn't write them off. He calls to him. God is not finished with us and with his universe yet. Next week we're going to explore this in more detail, but this week we must just see it very briefly. The, the judgments that are pronounced upon the man and the woman, for instance, are, are limited judgments. Yes, 
the woman will have greatly increased pain in childbearing, but, verse 16, with pain you will give birth to children. You will continue to multiply and fill the earth, human beings. That was my good intention for you in the beginning and I'm going to continue that. Or uh, uh, when the ground is cursed in his uh, speech to Adam, he says repeatedly um, that you will eat your food. Verse um, 17, through painful toil, you will eat of it. Verse 18, it will produce thorns and thistles and you will eat the plants of the field. Verse 19, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. You will eat, you will eat. You, this world is not a place totally dominated by evil. It is a place where I can continue my purposes. But more than that, the Bible says, God is not going to, in the long term, tolerate evil at all. The rest of the story of the Bible is a long story of God doing battle with evil through grace. Grace which finally led to him sending his son Jesus Christ to pay for those very human sins as a human being. Grace which led him to send his spirit to break that power that there is so deeply rooted in our hearts that makes us sin again and again and again. And grace which finally will be completed when at the end of time he creates a new heaven and a new earth whereas Revelation 22 verse 3 says there is no longer any curse. Evil was always a monstrous, terrible intrusion into God's good plan. Our visceral hatred of it is something placed into our hearts by the good God. We must accept that as people made in God's image as stewards over this world like G.K. Chesterton we bear the responsibility if you're not yet a Christian here that is a hard thing to hear but we must there is no one else out there who's going to take the blame Human beings in general are responsible for what is wrong with this world. You, I, am responsible for my own sins. But God has done something about it. He's made the way for our sins to be forgiven. He's made the way for our hearts to be changed. He's made the way for us to be part of a new creation beyond death. If you're a Christian here 
And in the midst of that pain, there is hope. If you're not a Christian here yet, then let me say to you, where else will you find hope? Moment of silence just for you to pray your own prayers.